Station Digital Radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Good afternoon. Welcome to Intelligent Talk with Ralph McElvenny. Join us every Thursday at 5 p.m. on the City World Radio Network as we discuss topics in politics, art, and current events. Hi, uh, welcome to Intelligent Talk, intelligenttalk.com. We're very pleased to have with us today Ambassador David Stewart. Ambassador Stewart is a former South African ambassador to the United Nations, a former chief of staff to President F.W. de Klerk, the last white South African president, and um, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize with Nelson Mandela. Um, ambassador Stewart, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you. So I just wanted to do a brief and sort of inartful analysis of the history um, you gave me that YouTube um, video that you had done, which I found very helpful, and I researched a little bit on the South African history, so I thought I would just do a brief um, for the audience. A lot of people may not know very much about South Africa. Um, it was founded by the Dutch in the 17th century. They were then displaced by the British in the, um, in the 19th century. There were two Boer Wars against the British. The so-called Great Trek saw Afrikaners going into the inland, and um, that's basically the root of the Dutch white Afrikaners. As you said, Ambassador Stewart, uh, more people had fought during the Boer War than any other conflict that the British had between, I believe, Napoleon and World War One. Is that correct? That's correct, right. Yeah, so may I ask you, so you started your career in the Foreign Service, is that correct? That's right, and a long time ago, I'm afraid. What, in the 1950s or? 1966. 1956. And what countries were you stationed to before the United Nations? Well, I, I spent uh, my first posting in Australia, in Canberra, and my second posting, I was in Ottawa, in Canada. Okay. Uh, and then, at age 37, you go to the United Nations, right? You're the South African ambassador to the UN? That was correct. And you very modestly said no one else wanted the job, but I'm sure that's not correct. I mean, it was must have been a plum assignment to get the um, the ambassadorship. Well, it was a very uncomfortable assignment because we were the most unpopular country in the world by a long way. Right. Um, and how long were you ambassador for the United Nations for? Well, I was at the UN for about four and a half years, and I was ambassador for two of those years. Two of those years, okay. Could you tell me when you met um, President de Klerk? Around what year was that? That would have been, I guess, around 1981. 1981, okay. And um, President de Klerk becomes president in 1989, I believe, right? President Botha has a stroke, then he becomes president. 
Yeah, he became acting president on the 15th of August Well, I just want to go back to the um, sort of the 1980s, if I could, in the area of, as you said, there were sanctions against South Africa. Um, it was a difficult time. There was a communist insurgency in Angola and Zambia, and I want to get into that with you. But um, I just first want to get into what led to the basically negotiations with Mandela, because you had written that it wasn't necessarily the sanctions that did it, because in some ways you said the sanctions were a plus, because South Africa had the fifth or the sixth largest arms producer in the world, Correct. Yeah, sanctions always uh, has unintended uh, consequences. So one of the unintended consequences was that because uh, there was an arms embargo against us, we developed a very large armaments industry. And very ironically, armaments were one of our major exports. Okay. So, um, and also you said also that there was a state of emergency in 1986, and you said also the state of emergency actually was actually had calmed things down and produced calm. Is, is that correct, too? It was absolutely essential because uh, there had been a very high revolutionary expectations before the state of emergency. And the goals of the state of emergency were to restore order, to restore services, and to create an environment that would be conducive to constitutional negotiations. So uh, we believe that it was absolutely essential to restore order and to get the message across that there wasn't going to be an armed solution to our problems, either by way of a successful revolution or by way of indefinite uh, repression of uh, the majority of the population. Okay. I alluded to this earlier, but could you please discuss the military situation facing South Africa? Because in the interview I read, you mentioned a serious conflict in 1988 between basically South African and Cuban forces, which South Africa had won. I don't think also a lot of people who are younger today realize the situation, which there was, there was essentially an insurgency against you in, what, in, um, um, in Namibia. There was a communist uh, troops in Angola. There was uh, ANC bases in Zambia against you. Could you just discuss the security situation overall, please, in the 1980s? Well, the, the, the situation was that uh, during the 1970s and 1980s, the Soviet Union was uh, uh, really conducting surrogate wars against the West and third world countries. Uh, there was a stalemate in Europe, but the Soviet Union thought that it would be able to exploit uh, the situation in Southern Africa and various parts of Asia and also in various parts of Central America. And it made a particularly heavy investment in Southern Africa because it uh, perceived that South Africa was increasingly isolated 
and that uh, it would be uh, a, a great target of opportunity. So when the Portuguese uh, empire collapsed in 1974, the Soviets very quickly came to the aid of one of the Angolan parties called the NPLA, which was basically communist in its orientation. And they then sent in uh, strong reinforcements to ensure that the uh, NPLA would win the, follow the elections that took place in 1975. And this was to the great concern of half of the countries uh, in the Organization of African Unity. And some of those countries asked South Africa to invade uh, uh, Angola to help the non-NPLA movements like the FLNA and UNITA in the South. South Africa did this. And our forces were just outside of Uganda uh, when uh, the United States withdrew its support for this operation. So we had to return to uh, our forces to the neighboring territory of Namibia, which we had ruled since 1915 under a contested League of Nations mandate. So for the following uh, 10 years, 12, 13 years, there was low-intensity warfare in southern Angola as the, the, uh, the Angolan forces tried to uh, support the, the liberation movement of Namibia in their cross-border attacks against Namibia. And our forces were there to try and stop them. And this came to a crisis in, uh, in September, October 1987, because the, uh, I think the Soviets and the Angolans and the Cubans, there were 50,000 Cuban troops in Angola at the time, decided that they were going to launch a major attack against the headquarters of the UNITA movement, which was opposing them and which had contested the elections against them. And to reach the uh, capital of UNITA, uh, uh, which was a place called Jamba in the southeast of the country, they had to cross the Lomba River. And uh, UNITA forces and our forces uh, stopped them at the Battle of the Lomba River uh, and it was a, a, quite a devastating uh, defeat for the uh, Angolans, the Cubans, and the Soviets, because Soviets were very closely involved in the running of the campaign. Uh, the South African forces destroyed 93 Soviet tanks, or Soviet-built tanks, which was perhaps one of the biggest uh, uh, tank battles fought in Africa since the Second World War. It also destroyed an entire Angolan brigade of 5,000 men. So it was a very big, big-scale battle, and it really changed the whole balance of forces in Southern Africa, because after that, uh, I think the Russians under Gorbachev began to lose interest 
in their adventures in southern Africa. Uh, they had spent a lot of money on this. Gorbachev was trying to prop up the Soviet Union. He introduced his policies of Krasnos and Perestroika, and he couldn't afford these expensive and unsuccessful foreign adventures any longer. So the Russians, the Soviets, told the Angolans and the Cubans that they would have to reach an agreement with South Africa. And this happened in 1988. There was a tripartite agreement between South Africa, Angola, and Cuba relating to the withdrawal of those 50,000 Cuban troops from Angola and then the simultaneous uh, implementation of a UN independence plan for the territory of Namibia just south of Angola. So it was a a win-win situation, uh, it meant that South Africa could extract itself from uh, Namibia, that Namibia could become independent under a proper system with a proper constitution, and it meant that the Soviet threat in Southern Africa would disappear. Now, uh, Jonas Semvimbi was the leader of the anti-communist Angolan forces. I think you, you were quite close to him, is that correct? Yes, that's right. I, I knew him very well. Yeah. And he was a very impressive leader. Uh, the, the the secret to Angolan politics was just looking at the surnames of the leaders of the different movements. All of the surnames of the NPLA were Portuguese. They came from the, the mixed Portuguese-Angolan uh, bureaucracy that took over when the Portuguese left. The surnames of the guys from Unita were all African. So it was, uh, there was a little bit of a cultural dimension in the struggle as well. Okay. I, I want to turn to Mandela, but I just wanted to say, so it basically it's, it's fair to say that if it hadn't been for the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and South Africa's defeat of these communist forces, the groundwork for releasing Mandela and probably having the peace negotiations might not have occurred. Is that is that fair to say, or would it maybe occurred at a different That's time? Absolutely, absolutely correct. Because one of our great concerns throughout this period was the influence of the South African Communist Party on the African National Congress. Uh, the South African Communist Party had managed to establish a very very strong relationship with the ANC. It had drafted most of its basic doctrines and ideologies, and it controlled the ANC's armed wing. And we were also very concerned because virtually all of the members of the ANC's National Executive Committee were also members of the South African Communist Party. And we knew that the the South African Communist Party uh, favored a what they call a two-phase revolutionary process in terms of which the first part of the revolution would be what they call the national liberation under the aegis of the national liberation movement, which was the ANC, after which the Communist Party would become what they called the Vanguard Party and lead the country on to full communism, and we weren't too keen on this. 
Right. Now, Joe, Joe Slovo, who was he? Was he, he was in the South African Communist Party, correct? Yeah, Joe Slovo was uh, a, a white member of the South African Communist Party. Uh, he was involved in the, in the armed wing of the ANC. He had a senior position in the armed wing, which was called Mkonto Oesidwe. Okay. Okay, so just for everyone, so now I want to just turn to, if I could, to um, your President de Klerk and your relationship with Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was, of course, the head of the ANC. President de Klerk lets him out of jail in 1990. Uh, I remember that very well. I was in college at the time. It was obviously worldwide news. It was a, a time of hope. Um, what you mentioned in the book that you wrote with President de Klerk, um, The Last Trek, you mentioned a side of Mandela, which I found sort of interesting. I mean, I think everyone has respect for President Mandela, but there was a certain, I guess, certain bitterness that you saw having been in jail for 27 years. And, for example, when uh, President de Klerk wants to have his, uh, his, his, um, his residence renovated, Mandela insists upon seeing it to see if it was really necessary to renovate it. Could you discuss some of the tensions between President de Klerk and Mandela? Yeah, the, the fact is that uh, they were leaders of opposing parties locked in negotiations on the future of South Africa. So there were often very, very stormy interactions between them. Uh, but the really critical thing was that whenever it was necessary, they were able to come together to resolve uh, deadlocks in the talks and to make sure that we could move ahead to the adoption of our new constitution. And there were there were sort of niggling bits uh, along the way. One of them was the question of the the residences that the various uh, senior political office bearers would have after the introduction of the new government. Uh, uh, Mr. Mandela was, of course, a president, and the clerk was a a deputy, one of two deputy presidents in the government of national unity. But it was actually not a, not a major issue for the clerk. It was just, just one of those uh, sort of niggling things that happens in politics. And I, I know that Nelson Mandela came to President de Klerk's 70th birthday party, I think at the Mount Nelson Hotel in Cape Town, which I stayed at years ago. So I know they, they finished up as, as good friends. But just to go back to that area, uh, uh, the tension between de Klerk and Mandela, was one of the main tensions the, the fighting between the Nkatha Zulu Party and the ANC? The Zulu Party was Chief Butelezi, who's still there today, and Mandela was, was made the allegation that the government was funding Nkatha to try to create turmoil amongst, you know, black civil war. Um, was, it, was, that, was that the main tension between the two of them, or one of the main tensions? Well, the, the main conflict arose not because of anything that the uh, government of F.W. de Klerk had done, but because the ANC was trying to move into the political territory controlled by the uh, more conservative Encarta Freedom Party. And uh, this really flared into a low-level civil war. And in the process, more than 400 of the Encarta Freedom Party leaders were assassinated. And uh, I think uh, various elements in the South African Defense Force 
then provided secret assistance to Encarta without the knowledge of President Kirk and against these specific instructions. So that was one of the crises that uh, we had to deal with during the Turks' presidency when it was revealed that elements in the defense forces were still assisting the Encarta Freedom Party. But the clerk took uh, decisive steps to make sure that this was stopped. Okay. Could I just ask now about the nuclear weapons? Um, South Africa is a very unique case. It's the only country in the world to build nuclear weapons and then dismantle them on their own volition. Places like Ukraine had nuclear weapons that were built by the Russians and they gave them back, but South Africa organically built nuclear weapons and then dismantled them. You said in an interview you gave that they had six and a half and, uh, nuclear weapons. Could you describe to me the process of what, why the nuclear weapons were built and why they were dismantled? Well, they were, the decision to build the nuclear weapons was taken in the 1970s, I think because of the collapse of the Portuguese Empire and the arrival of the, the Soviet Union in Southern Africa. Uh, South Africa did not enjoy the protection of any nuclear weapons power as Canada or Australia or countries in Western Europe did. And so it felt that under these circumstances, it was necessary to uh, try to develop its own deterrent. But uh, in fact, uh, it was not really a credible deterrent because the the use of nuclear weapons and bush wars made no sense at all. And it would have been unthinkable to use nuclear weapons against the capitals of any of our neighboring states. So when the Kirk came to power, to uh, uh, office as president in 1989, one of the first things he did was to cancel this program, firstly, because the threat from the Soviet Union had disappeared, Secondly, because the decisions that he was going to take with regard to the release of Nelson Mandela and the commencement of constitutional negotiations would, he knew, resolve all the outstanding problems between South Africa and its neighbors in Southern Africa. And thirdly, the program was expensive, so it made absolutely no sense to keep the nuclear weapons. So the clerk, uh, one, as one of the first decisions he took early in his presidency was, was to instruct the, that the weapons be dismantled, and we then entered into a full agreement with the International Atomic Energy Agency, and we signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you two questions you may not be able to comment on, but I'll just ask them. There, there has been books written that basically said Israel helped South Africa with their nuclear program. And number two, that there was a test that South Africa did off the coast in 1979 that was picked up by a U.S. satellite. Do you have anything you can comment on either of those, those two things? Well, uh, this was never really proved. Uh, there was a great deal of speculation about it. Uh, and I, I was in the room when all of the... Uh, the people involved in the program denied to President Kirk that there had been any 
relationship with Israel in developing nuclear weapons okay. and denied that there had been a test over the Southern Atlantic. But then again, people don't always tell the truth to presidents. So I really don't know. Okay, fair enough. Just to, if I could turn to um, where we are today, President de Klerk has said that he's, he's still optimistic in spite of the problems. And some of the problems that obviously you know better than myself, but there were allegations of corruption by President Zuma, who's now been replaced. But he was the last president of South Africa um, for a number of years, and he was supposedly uh, funneling um, pro- um, projects to the Gupta family and, and doing other things with his children, and also a house that he had renovated and paid a lot of money. And now the current president, Cyril Ramposa, has an ally named David Mabusa, who is widely seen as, as not honest. And there's record crime and there's problems with HIV. And, but in, in spite of the problems of South Africa today, are you still optimistic on the future, like, like President de Klerk? Well, I think the, the first point is that the situation in South Africa today, with all of our problems, is a lot better than it was before 1994. And it's certainly a lot better than it would have been if we had not taken the decisions that we took in 1994 to enter into uh, uh, negotiations with all of the people of South Africa and to create our present constitutional democracy. So the, the, the good news is that we do have a strong constitution. We have a free political system. We're going to have our next elections next year. They will be free and fair. We have independent courts. We have very outspoken and free media. So in many respects, in fact, all respects, we are a functioning multi-party democracy. However, we have taken all of the wrong decisions in, in, in important policy areas. Uh, to start with, we have failed a whole generation of kids by providing one of the worst education systems in the world, even though it's quite expensive. Uh, secondly, we've followed the wrong economic policy since 2007, and our economy is hardly growing. As a result, we have catastrophically high unemployment. Uh, the official figure is 27%. It's, if the expanded figure is around 37%, but the reality is that only about 40% of people between the ages, or black South Africans, between the ages of 16 and 65 are working, which is a very, very low uh, labor absorption rate. So uh, we've failed to to uh, address the problems of equality in our inequality in our society. Uh, although our new constitution commits us to the achievement of equality, we are a less equal society today than we were in 1994. So we have immense challenges. And uh, one, of the, one of the challenges is uh, increasing the... Uh, vitriolic uh, uh, race relations. Uh, the, the, uh, the old days of the reconciliation that Nelson Mandela worked so hard to achieve are unfortunately something of the past. 
So we're wrestling with all of these problems, uh, but um, the situation is a lot better than it was in 1994. Uh, we're still a functioning uh, democracy, a free society, uh, but in many respects we're going in the wrong direction. Would you say, Ambassador Stewart, that an example of going in the wrong direction is what the ANC did recently with Julius Malema, where they try to basically go to the left of him and they say, well, we're going to now confiscate white-owned property without compensation, sort of like they did in Zimbabwe? And- yeah, exactly. I think this is one of the one of the main concerns. There are a lot of people in our government who really think that Venezuela is a great example believe it or not. So uh, we have to uh, we have to combat wild and wacky uh, ideologists, uh, some of them still strongly influenced by the South African Communist Party. Okay. I, I don't know if you saw that last night, President Trump sent a tweet about this one, the question I'm going to ask you now, but basically he said that, you know, there, there are um, stories of these white farmers under attacks. As I understand it, the number of white farm deaths has actually gone down about 50% over the last few years, from about 100 a year to something like 50 a year. But Trump sent a tweet about this just yesterday. But the attacks on the white farms, do you see those as politically motivated or that's just random crime in your opinion? It's, uh, it's a little bit of both because we, our previous president actually sang a song saying that we should all kill the fathers. And you know, whichever way you want to look at that, that is going to give uh, criminals the idea that it's open season on farmers. And so the, the murder rate among farmers has been exceptionally high. Uh, whether it is uh, coordinated or organized remains to be seen. It hasn't been proved yet. But it, it, is, uh, it is a very serious situation. That song you're talking about, is that the song where they say kill the boar? Is that the song, you're, the, sort of the ANC song? That's, that's the song, yeah. E- even Nelson Mandela sang that song, I believe it. You can see it on YouTube, actually. So. Yeah, but he sang it as a, as a sort of an old liberation song. Right, right. Um, uh, President Zuma said that the cabinet was going to shoot the boars, uh, which uh, means that sort of it wasn't a liberation from because they didn't have a cabinet when they were fighting it during the war. So it is disturbing, and under any circumstances, it's unacceptable to say or sing songs that you're going to kill anybody. Yeah, yes, of course. Um, look, I just want to ask you about something else which is in the news recently in South Africa, if I could, and I'm sure you know much more about it than I do, but there's a book written called The Lost Boys of Bird Island that made the allegation that the Secretary basically of Defense of South Africa, Malin, had basically was basically had a pedophile ring that he was using South African military to bring in children to an, an island where he was having these um, these affairs. And the co-author of the book was recently died, and the allegation is maybe he was killed. Do you have any comment on on that kind of um, story? Yeah, these these reports are very shocking, uh, but they still remain allegations. And uh, F. W. De Kirk has called on our authorities to investigate them thoroughly. The reality is that uh, in any uh, government, you're going to get aberrant people. Um, You know, you've had a couple of presidents who've had 
pretty wild sexual appetites themselves. Yes, President Kennedy. But you, you get this sort of thing all over the world as individuals and what have you. The uh, clerk made the point that this was in no way a reflection on the people that he had worked with in general. And the allegations must still be proved. Okay. Let me ask you about one more allegation, if I could. I'm sure you heard about Eugene de Kock and the, the allegations of Unit C-10. And Eugene said he killed something like 100 people on a farm outside of Pretoria. Do you believe that that probably occurred? And was that obviously also just an example of just maybe not enough supervision of the South African security forces that that could occur? Yeah, that, uh, that has been, I think, pretty well proved in our courts. And uh, uh, de Kock served a very, very long prison sentence for that. Uh, he was in charge of uh, an illegal unit within the uh, the South African police that carried out uh, uh, irregular actions against uh, ANC guerrillas. And in the process, many of them were killed in an extrajudicial manner. So it, it was something that was quite unacceptable under any circumstances. And again, it is something that... Uh, the clerk tried to combat. Uh, he, he was informed about these things uh, only a month or so before the 1994 elections by a commission of inquiry that he himself had instituted uh, called the Goldstone Commission. Okay. Um, yes, and, and, and to the credit of, South African, of the South African government, they've actually released Eugene Dickock because he went before the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, to Bishop Tutu and confessed his crimes, and as I understand it, he's actually been released. Yeah, he's been released, I think, because he'd served out his term. Uh, he did not qualify for amnesty in terms of the truth and reconciliation process because many of the crimes that he committed, uh, he committed on his own account and not as part of any kind of political struggle. And that was the requirement for uh, amnesty. And many of the crimes were also egregious, completely out of proportion to any uh, objective, rational objective. Okay. Can I go back? To, there was a vote in 1992 where basically it was just a white-only vote where there was um, the decision made to allow President Clerk to dismantle apartheid, which obviously de Klerk won that vote. If that vote had not been won, do you think President de Klerk would have resigned? And what would have been the future of the government had that not gone his way? Well, he would have had to have resigned uh, and called an election. And uh, it's very likely that a right-wing party would have won that election. But uh, de Klerk uh, had confidence in the majority of white South Africans that they would continue with the negotiation process, which they did. It was a, a victory by 69%. And, and one must remember that one isn't talking here of, of a minority as such. White South Africans, and particularly Afrikaners, regarded themselves as a separate nation who happened to be caught up in the geographic area that the Brits had mapped out in 1910. And so for 
for uh, white South Africans. It was a question of taking the enormous risk of giving up their right to national self-determination. And that was really what the crux of the negotiations was all about. Did you ever think, um, when you were in the negotiations with Mandela and, and, and de Klerk, by the way, your opinion of Mandela, did you did you like him personally? Did you find him a very charming, charismatic person? Or? But, but Mandela is uh, undoubtedly one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. Right. <laughs> Without a doubt. And I've met a lot of presidents and prime ministers and what have you. But he was uh, really in a class of his own, uh, a man of uh, incredible charm, uh, of, of wonderful bearing, uh, great dignity, uh, a great reconciler uh, after he became president. Uh, he was a, he was an exceptionally uh, 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 remarkable man. Uh, I remember on my 50th birthday getting a telephone call out of the blue. And it was Mandela. And he said, oh, Dave, now you're 50. Now you're a real man. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which was really such a nice gesture. I mean, I, I was never on his side. I was always one of his opponents. But he had just incredible personal charm. And he really went out of his way to make everybody he came across feel special. Right, like when he went to Orania, that white settlement, and he had tea with the person whose exactly. husband... Exactly, when he went to see uh, the widow of Hendrik from Foot, who had been the main architect of the project. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, just incredible um, charm to do that, and um, lack of any uh, ill will towards... So, was there any time when you were in these negotiations between Mandela and de Klerk that you thought things would not turn out well, or were you pretty confident that it was going to be a happy conclusion? No, it was like a roller coaster ride the whole way, up and down. We didn't know at all that it was going to be successful right until the very end. And in fact, it, the roller coaster nearly came off the tracks in June 1992 when the ANC decided to withdraw from the negotiations. And they thought, well, look, uh, you know, they're having to make too many concessions in the negotiations. Maybe it would be better if they if they did what they called the Leipzig option. If they could get enough people out in the streets and demonstrating and striking for long enough, as the East Germans had done just a year or two before, then the, the South African government would collapse as the East German government had collapsed, and they wouldn't have to go through all of these these painful negotiations. But of course, it didn't work. Right, right, yes. Um, just um, so, just in conclusion, then, um, obviously, you said you're still. It's still fair to say you're, you're fairly optimistic on the future, in spite of the problems, as President de Klerk is correct. Yes, uh, uh, the, the interesting thing about South Africa is that. Every, everybody who's visited South Africa since 1652 has said, oh, this is a lovely place, but it can't possibly last another five years. And, and we're still here. And right. it is a lovely place. Right. Um, okay, well, Ambassador Stewart, um, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. It was very interesting, and thank you so much for speaking with us. That's a great pleasure.
Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them. And make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education.